This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. So this is a re-release, which is the first time I think we're doing this, guys. I think so. So we keep hearing from people who want to hear about female masturbation, and we actually did a female masturbation episode four and a half years ago. And Way at the beginning. It was one of the first first episodes. Exactly. Released. It was it was pre-Sarah. And um <laughs> and um it was a great episode. And we went back and we thought we can't do much that we think is better about this episode. Um it's about female masturbation. And then we also have Miriam Kabakov from Aishel talking about um lesbians and sex. And it was a great episode. And I recorded live at the Limud conference. Right. It was recorded live at the Limud conference. I have to give a small caveat, which is that in the early days, Dove and I were like newbies to the podcast world. And instead of realizing that we would say next episode, last episode, we would say next month's podcast, last month's podcast, <laughs> until some very um, brave young student <laughs> came up to us and said, uh, Rabbi Linzer, Dr. Marcus, um, you know, you're using podcast instead of episode. And so now when we go back and listen to that episode, we, I was laughing because I realized we keep saying in the last podcast and the next podcast. So I apologize in advance for that. Um, beyond that, it was a great episode. So enjoy the, our podcast and enjoy this episode. <laughs> So welcome to The Joy of Text, a podcast about Judaism and sexuality. We are live from Libud, New York. Right. Uh, the Joy of Text is a project of Yeshiva Chavay Torah Lindemann Center of Halachic Studies, and it's produced by Jewish Public Media. My name is David Svi Kalman, and I'm the CEO of Jewish Public Media. In today's show, we have a packed slate. We are talking about female masturbation. Uh, then we will have a guest, Miriam Kabakov, who is the director of Aishel. Um, and then we'll have some questions from listeners, including a question about talking dirty. With me today are Dr. Batsheva Marcus, the clinical director of the Medical Center for Female Sexuality and the founder and vice president of JOFA, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. And... <laughs> and Rabbi Dov Linzer, the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivat Chovei Torah Rabbinical School. Okay, on to our first topic. (laughs) Our first topic today is female masturbation, and I should say that we released the first episode probably around a month ago now, and um, we asked people to submit questions uh, on the website since then, and the most popular question, I think by a pretty significant margin, has been uh, about female masturbation in some variation. So, is it halakhically permissible? Why are there different attitudes in the Talmud towards male and female masturbation? And did the rabbis acknowledge female masturbation at all? Is there concern about illicit sexual thoughts for women in the first place? And in the marriage context, how does female masturbation relate to relationships with the, with the husband? We'll start there. Okay, so we'll get to Can you hear me? Because I'm usually, I'm used to standing, but I can't, obviously, in this case. So we're going to talk about female masturbation, which I realize does beg the question a little about male masturbation. I promise there will be a follow-up podcast about male masturbation. Female masturbation may be a little less complicated from a halachic standpoint. We'll find out. Um, It may be more complicated from a sociological standpoint, so we'll talk about that as well. Um, So I'm going to start out, and then we're going to just go back and forth, um, Dove and I. So my favorite story about female masturbation, don't worry, it's not personal. (laughs) is 
I was teaching a sort of a one-off class to Westchester Hebrew High School students about um, sex, the girls. I was teaching the girls. And, um, you know, at one point during this presentation, I said to them, you need to get a mirror and you need to look at your body and you need to look at your vulva and you need to look at your vagina and you need to kind of know what it looks like. Um, And you should start touching yourself to figure out what feels good. And one of the girls in the back raised her hand and said, oh, it sounds like you're telling us we should be masturbating. So I said, I am telling you you should be masturbating. So she said, well, you have to understand that the, one of the worst insults that we can get hurled at us by the boys in the school are, you are so hard up that you masturbate. And I turned to her and I said, well, if that ever happens and anybody says that to you, you turn back to them and you say, you should only be so lucky as to get to be with a girl who does masturbate. <laughs> so... That was that initial conversation. So I'm going to talk about all the reasons why I think it is important, and I think there's some obvious ones and there's some less obvious ones. But before I do that, I think we'll start talking a little about halacha, which is always a little more complicated. (laughs) So, um, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right that uh, halacha treats male masturbation uh, much more extensively than female masturbation, and I think it's worth pointing out why, and there are a few reasons. Uh, First and foremost, halacha is very concerned with the concept of zera levatala, of waste of the seed, spilling of seed, spilling of the seed, and that is not an issue for, for women. At least the Talmud doesn't think that it is. The reason that the Talmud has such a problem with the male sort of masturbation and the spilling of the seed is because it understands, you know, that two reasons, I should say, and one is that the uh, semen has the potential to, to procreate, to, uh, to lead to conception, and therefore it feels like it's a waste of potential life. And uh, the other reason is because it sees it as a man having sex with himself. Um, the Talmud actually refers to it as uh, adultery with one's hand. That's the phrase used in the Talmud for male masturbation. Now, when it comes to women, interestingly, although the Talmud actually uh, had a concept of uh, female seed, that when a woman would uh, ejaculate or, um, or otherwise, or not, well, it wasn't clear if it was exactly orgasm, but somehow, you know, some type of lubricate or liquid that the Talmud understood that that female seed combined with the male seed actually led to procreation. But while that's true, it has no problem with any sense of female spilling of seed, sort of does not see that as an issue, does not see that in the same sort of procreative power as the male spilling of seed. And when it comes also to the issue of sex, um, sex with oneself, the Talmud very much, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, is sort of sees everything from a male perspective. So sex is defined as as penetrative sex, as penetration, and penetration with the penis. So therefore, a man can have sex with himself, a man can have sex with another man, but it does not think that a woman can have sex without a man, or that a woman can have sex with herself. Um, that's based on the, the Talmud's idea of sex. When you say that they can, you don't mean that they... Legally. Just, they, they, it's possible. It's possible, right. It understands that that's sort of, that that would be defined as an act of sex. So we have a really an interesting paradox here, or irony, which is, is that because the Talmud basically only focuses or primarily focuses on on the man in terms of the sexual act and the semen and that that's the power of sex, Um, women basically pass under the radar. 
and therefore, um, therefore, women, there's no discussion about female masturbation, not because the Talmud says it's totally fine, it's okay, it's not a problem. The Talmud just completely ignores it. Um, it doesn't, so the, on the one hand, that means from a halachic point of view, uh, there's a lot of latitude, that there's nothing really, I mean, I'll talk more specifically about some potential issues, but it means that the Talmud never says anything against it. On the other hand, you know, ideologically, somebody could feel bothered by the fact that the Talmud ignores female sexuality, it sort of only acknowledges male, sort of the man as part of the one who's doing the act of sex and not the woman. Um, but from a halakhic standpoint, really, the Talmud uh, says that there's no problem. More than saying that there's no problem for a woman to masturbate, it doesn't address really the issue of female masturbation. So that's so interesting because I'm going to make three, I'm going to point out three reasons. I'm sure there are more, but I'm going to point out three reasons why I think it's really important for women to learn to masturbate. And I think the third reason gets sort of into your discussion. So I think, okay. So the first one feels pretty... I'll call it benign. It's kind of like motherhood and apple pie. Like, it is very important for women, girls and women, to learn what feels good to them um, and to be able to know their bodies well enough to know what gives them pleasure. It makes it much easier to translate that, I think, into a partnered relationship of some sort. So that's a very practical reason, and I think that that's a reason that's very hard to argue with. And I've seen that with my patient base, right? If you can figure out what feels good, then you can teach somebody else how to make you feel good. The second reason, which is a little less sort of concrete, is the issue of sort of accepting yourself as a sexual being, like knowing that your body is able to give you pleasure and feel good. And I feel like that's something that often kind of gets lost in the translation um, for girls, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, especially girls who grow up in a more of a yeshivish kind of world, not even yeshivish, sort of an orthodox world, anywhere on the spectrum. Um, But there's something about owning your sexuality that the boys seem to do more naturally, I think, and the girls don't. And I think when you learn that your body can be a vessel for pleasure, it's very powerful, and it it gives you a different relationship to sex than you would have otherwise. And the third reason... And this is where it comes in true about having sex with yourself. You know, I, I'm, I get aggravated because I feel like most of the sexual conversations that we have as a community are always dealing with young people. You know, 15 to 25. Our little microscope is on those 15 to 25-year-olds, and the 25 to 85-year-olds fall out of the conversation, mm-hmm. even though one would hope that a good, strong sex life would last for your entire life. And, you know, masturbating is important because not everybody has a partner. Not everybody's partner is always available. Partners get sick. Partners aren't there all the time. Um, but you are always with yourself. And having a sexual partner that's always available and knows when you're in the mood um, is, actually, <laughs> is actually very, very helpful. So, you know, I, I feel like um, this idea that masturbation really be looked at as possibly what I'd say sex for one as opposed to sex for two, I think is also a pretty powerful idea. And I, I'm curious if you feel like somehow that isn't okay from a halakha perspective. So, you know, I think we'll get to talking about in another podcast, as you said, male masturbation, which presents a lot greater um, halachic uh, challenges. And uh, I should mention, actually, at this point that, you know, in the previous podcast, we addressed the issue of wearing a condom to avoid STDs. And um, what um, what we sort of didn't address was that under normal circumstances, obviously, halacha is, as a general rule, is very much against use of condom for birth control because of the spilling of the seed type of a concern. You know, it's different when it's uh, addressing uh, serious health issues. So let's bracket for a moment the how, sort of how to deal with that in terms of male masturbation, which is really where all the halachic material is. You know, 
in terms of giving oneself sexual pleasure, which is sort of how the Talmud would, were it to be asked, you know, it doesn't really address it, <laughs> but were it to be asked, that's how it would see this. It would, not see an, it would not see it for reasons I said as an act of sex. It would see it as giving oneself sexual pleasure. Um, um, you know, it does not sort of see that as, as a problem. And I, if you're asking me, I don't see it as a problem either. I mean, some people have raised an issue, like, isn't this, an, is, isn't this a problem because these are, like, like isn't this sexual pleasure is supposed to be elevated in the context of a relationship with another person? Is it okay to be having this pleasure when it's not within that context? Is it a problem because it is leading oneself down a path of sin? It's encouraging a person maybe to do inappropriate sexual activity. So I don't think that those are issues at all. I mean, besides, again, the fact that the halacha isn't addressing it, you know, we have no problem when it comes to having pleasure in other contexts. We, uh, we want to sort of sanctify our, our pleasure. You know, we make blessings before we we eat to sort of sanctify it, but it's very rare that you're going to find somebody who's going to give a person a hard time for like really enjoying a meal and talking about how much they're loving the meal. They made a bracha three hours ago and now they're really into it, right? So we don't sort of have this negative attitude generally towards pleasure and, you know, for some reason, for some people, sexual pleasure is much more problematic than other forms of pleasure. Um, But it doesn't have to be. I think that if there's a concern about uh, you know, leading somebody on a sinful path or encouraging like a like wedding one sexual appetite. I mean, I'm sure you can sort of address this. That uh, in many ways, it's much healthier. You know, it's uh, it it can make one avoid uh, if one has sexual. You know drives and urges, avoid satisfying them in much less healthy and much less halachically acceptable ways. And it can be not only physiologically health, healthy, but it can be healthy in terms of uh, you know, satisfying those desires in a safe type of a context. And that one person, you know, I think we have a problem in our community that because we you know, talk about not having sex before marriage, not masturbating, so you have these young people that have all of these sexual urges and are looking for a licit context in which to satisfy them. And then they wind up... Uh, for some people, getting married to the wrong person or well before they're ready because they're just so eager to have sex. So there's a lot, there's a lot that can be done here, even from, if we're to look at it from like a halachic perspective, about helping a person make the right types of choices um, rather than the wrong ones. You know, it's funny because I think that what happens sometimes with girls, and this kind of goes back to my first, you know, the part of what I was talking about with the girls kind of being embarrassed that they masturbate. And I had a, a conversation um, last night with a young woman from college who was saying to me that a lot of her friends are very uncomfortable with the idea that they masturbate. Like somehow that's that's a bad thing. Um, and I really do believe that the pendulum has swung so far for young women in terms of not acknowledging and, and embracing their sexuality that anything we can do to help them um, is a good thing. I, I haven't seen this being a slippery slope. You know, I, I have not seen women who masturbate then end up, you know, walking 42nd Street. That has not <laughs> been my experience. You know, I, I do think one of the issues, and this comes up in different contexts, this issue of, you know, tzniyut and how our day schools, for example, you know, put, and it's not just the day schools. You see this in, in secular, con- you know, um, contexts as well, um, where the boys are told that, you know, the girls have to dress modestly because otherwise the boys will be out of control, right? Like the girls are somehow responsible for the boys' lustful thoughts and ideas. And the girls, you know, are told you have to dress, you know, in a Tsanua way because otherwise you'll bring all these lustful thoughts on the men. But what we don't realize is that the subtext of that is so, so sad and so dangerous because what we're saying is all the guys do is think about sex and they really can't control themselves, which is not true. 
not, you know, any experience that I know of. And what we're saying is women don't really have lustful thoughts. We don't have to worry about the women, right? Like that's, that's, you know, the girls, they're not really thinking about sex anyway. So who cares? That's not about dressing for themselves. I actually think, and this is where I think some tension comes in, that this idea of, um, you know, when you see teenage girls sort of experimenting a little bit with how they're dressing, I feel like sometimes it's a good thing because that is what allows them to feel sexy and feel sexual, right? The girls aren't, it's not a matter of feeling like they're dressing that way to just be enticing to the boys, but there's something about it that makes them feel powerful and sexual and, and enticing also sometimes that they can get some level of, um, you know, that, that somebody else is appreciating their body as well. And obviously these are things we have to put, you know, limits on and have discussions about, but that we start with a starting point of women not being able to sort of accept their own sexuality is very sad because for girls especially, I feel like um, their sexuality is, it's not always so dramatic. Sometimes it's a little bit fragile and it needs really to be helped along and it gets stifled very easily. And I feel like these messages that these young girls or teenagers or young women get that you have to be covered up, you have to constantly be worried about how somebody's looking at you, those are not great messages. And the more that we can get women to kind of reclaim their bodies, the better off will be. So let me just add uh, a point to that, which is, so both in terms of the whole issue about sniut and dressing, you know, that leads, and this I'm sure will be a topic, uh, a full topic for another podcast. As you said, it leads to um, girls thinking, you know, having very negative body images and thinking bad about their own sexuality. Um, So, you know, uh, masturbation, if it's not a halachic problem, could do a lot to sort of rectify that those other religious messages, you know, that there's a difference between modesty and shame, but when we talk about modesty of dress, it often leads to a sense of shame, and it could be very healthy in terms of counterbalancing that. Um, the other issue is about this point about ignoring female sexuality, you know, because the other point that the Talmud has about male masturbation, actually not masturbation, but was rele- is relevant, is a concern about men having sexual thoughts in general, hirurim, illicit sexual thoughts. And probably the, the almost overwhelming concern of the Talmud in that is as well that it would lead to this uh, seminal emission spilling of seed. And then again, not relevant to women. But it might also be that it's just concerned about the fact that, you know, a mind that should be devoted to uh, holier things, you know, should not be dis- distracted by these types of sexual thoughts. And it's telling that it doesn't have that problem with women. You know, and therefore it's sort of ignoring female sexuality. So the, the good part is, is that there are not a restrictions. You know, that's the good part. The bad part is it makes us realize this whole, this cultural problem of ignoring female sexuality and how we can actually use this fact that there are not restrictions about masturbation to, you know, to sort of reclaim that. The one thing I want to go back to quickly, and you probably have something you want to close on as well, is this issue of, you know, looking at women who are not 18 years old and might be interested in masturbating and how important it is to keep that part of your body um, active. There's no part of your body that shouldn't be exercised and your vagina is the same way. You use it or you'll lose it. So, so you know, I'm getting a lot of giggles here from the 18-year-olds, but it's totally true. So, um, you know, you should be thinking about this as, as you know, keeping your body healthy, um, masturbating, keep putting something into the vagina if that's the way you want to masturbate, but for sure having blood flow into that area, those are really healthy things to do. They're not kinky, they're not weird, they're healthy. And and I, I just want to make sure that that, that that gets sort of put into this discussion as well. So I want to end by raising some questions that we got that uh, about this issue, and I'd like to hear your thoughts, because there was questions about uh, can a woman do it when she's in need and when she and her husband can't be having sex? Um, you know, why not? This is a great way of dealing with that, and in a way it could be seen as, you know, 
as, as healthy in the sense that it avoids uh, even other types of activities which would not be, which would which be halachic violations. But then the questions were, well, what about doing it without telling the husband that you're doing it? And what about thinking about, you know, another man and fantasizing when you're doing it? Um, and is that a type of a cheating on your husband? So um, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about that. So our last podcast was a lot about fantasies. So if you tuned into that, you heard that you know, doesn't seem to be much halacha problem with that at all, and I'm a big fan of that. Um, and I would say this sort of falls into the same category. You know, you want the core of your sexual relationship, if you are in a married relationship, you want it to be with your partner. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a part of your life that is not always 100% with your partner. And as long as you're not doing something which is in violation of you know, halacha or violation of discussion, I guess, you had with your partner. Guess if the two of you sat down and, and your partner said, I really don't want you masturbating, then, then it might be cheating. But um, I would say to you, maybe want to look for a different partner. <laughs> um, so, so, but the idea that we fantasize and that our minds run in lots of different directions is just the reality of life. And again, it seems to me like if you were if you are masturbating in a way that makes you feel good and feels healthy, that it's a normal part of a relationship. And people in partnered relationships masturbate. That is just the reality. I mean, I know people with little kids are probably really, somebody has time. <laughs> so, and I think that that's true. But, um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think we need to look at it within a context of what you do is normal, what you do is healthy, and in most cases, just be very helpful. That answer? Well, yeah. I mean, I you know I've been grappling with this as well because I know that the Talmud is certainly concerned about behavior that you know, like if a if a woman acts in ways that attracts the unwanted attention of other men and how that might you know impact on the marriage. But this isn't a real other man. This is a fantasy. I still sort of wonder about like how one should feel if like if my partner knew they'd really be upset that I was doing this or that I was thinking about what I'm thinking about when I'm doing this. You know, how, how do you feel just in terms of that as a relationship? So I feel like that, that's a much bigger question. That's the question that we grappled with last time, like fantasies. What about when you're having sex with your partner and you're thinking about right. other people? And we had a long conversation about that, um, that most people aren't really thinking about a, a specific other person. They're thinking of an idea of another person. You know, when you think about Derek Jeter, it's not actually Derek Jeter, right? Like, it's like a baseball player, you know, with right. really good triceps. Um, so... Um, <laughs> I think he has good tries. Um, so um, it, to me, it feels like fantasies is another realm. It's not really relevant to your relationship. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, from a sex therapy perspective, for sure, I think there's no issue with that at all. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavei Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshivat Chovetara that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. Miriam, we're really excited to have you here. Miriam is an executive director of Aishel and the editor of a book called Keep Your Wives Away From Them, Orthodox Women, Unorthodox Desires, a collection of writings about the challenges of joy of the LGBT Orthodox Jews. She has a master's degree in social work from, uh, from Wurzweiler. We're excited you're here. So before we sort of start with our other questions, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your, your personal journey, if you don't mind? 
Sure. Well, I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm truly honored. I, I love this show. I've listened to every uh, one so far. Um, and um, so I grew up basically a, a modern, in a modern Orthodox community, going to a modern Orthodox day school. And my family was traditional, but getting more and more religious as time went on. And I'm one of six children, and I call my family the, um, the United Nations of Orthodox observance. We're like, we run the gamut from Chabad to Bratislav to modern to, oh, I don't know what else. Um, disobedient Orthodox is what I like to call myself sometimes. So, um, so growing up in this modern Orthodox community, there was no language for being gay or lesbian. Maybe there were some slurs, but that was just about it. And this was the most modern yeshiva day school that there was almost. So in the sex ed classes from any other place, there were no words really to talk about what I was experiencing as I was as I was growing up and an adolescent. And I kind of realized there's something different about me. I'm having crushes on girls. And um, I know that this is normal for like a 14-year-old girl. And I'm just going to wait. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and then I went to Israel after high school, and, I, and that year it was like, I'm just going to pray. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I dated boys, and I tried to do the thing that I was supposed to be doing, and it didn't go away. And um, eventually I ended up in Stern College, and that's where I met my first girlfriend. And it was completely under the radar, completely under the radar. We were terrified that we were going to be found out. There was lore that people before us had, you know, had relationships with each other, and they had got kicked out of the school, and we were sure that that would happen to us. So anyway, fast forward a few years, I ended up back in Jerusalem after college, and I walked into this, this group of women who I had been told existed, a group of Orthodox lesbians, and who was the first person that I laid my eyes upon, but one of the women who was in the administration of Stern College. And when I saw her, I just knew I landed home. Like, my whole life came into this moment where here I am, you know, unable to change who I was, unable to pray away the gay, and here I was seeing this woman who, like, actually got me into Stern College and was, you know, a mentor to me and a teacher in a certain sense. And I had sort of become a part of this weave of women, so to speak. I'll talk a little bit about the, the title of the book, Keep Your Wives Away From Them. So this is from, like, my imaginary uh, discussion that I have with the Rambam, because don't we all have that imaginary discussion? And the beautiful thing is that, yes, to be a lesbian in orthodoxy, you are completely under the radar in a certain sense. And it is different, I think, for, for gay men. The thing about the Rambam, though, is the Rambam did not ignore female sexuality. In fact, he was the one who identified this weave of women in this subterranean way who were hanging out with other people's wives and developing romantic relationships with them. And they were doing this thing called misololot, rubbing their bodies against each other. I don't exactly know what the, what the word misololot means, but... Make a Close path enough. or something yeah. like that. Okay. Sporting with one another. Right. Doing something with each other. And they couldn't imagine, like, what are these women doing? So, like, there's one, and you'll, you'll correct me, right, but Lindsay, this is, like, You're your perfect. thing, not my thing. But basically, they were trying to figure out, what are these women doing in bed? They're, like, on top of each other, and one of them is, like, rubbing against each other. So, so one rabbi says, oh, one woman had the seed of her husband inside of her, and the other woman was having a hard time getting pregnant. So she was trying to give the sperm to her friend. Am I getting that right? Okay, anyway. <laughs> I didn't so like, see that in the Rambam, but somebody must okay, say that. Okay, so somebody says that. And it's like, that's the only thing they could imagine, what these women are doing, rubbing their genitals with each other, right? 
but he says what you should do is don't let your wives go in to see these women because more from a sociological point of view, I think, that it was going to be disruptive to the relationships that they were having with their husbands. But the, I think the ultimate concern of the Rambam, and correct me if I'm wrong, is whether the woman would have been eligible to marry Kohen. Well, that, whether she was a zonah by this act. So I'll jump in. So th- there is a debate in the Talmud about women that um, are doing this, which you know so- clearly seems to be addressing some form of uh, lesbian activity. And uh, there's an opinion that the woman becomes invalid to a kohen. We don't rule that way exactly for the reason that we don't acknowledge this as an act of sex. And in the Talmud, it actually says this is just pritsut, immoral behavior, but it doesn't make it anything weightier than, than that. Um, it doesn't even formally forbid it. Uh, Rambam as you correctly say, quotes you know, obscure sources that were not in the Talmud and actually s- sort of frames this as lesbian activity, speaks about women marrying other women and makes it a biblical prohibition. So that's really, Rambam really had that com- significant shift. And this is what happens when you acknowledge female sexuality and when you acknowledge lesbianism, so you get onto the radar screen and then Rambam made it forbidden. So... I guess one of the things that I always wonder is, do you feel like as a woman, and I totally get what you're saying about growing up. I mean, when I was growing up, there were no gays and lesbians. They just didn't exist. (laughs) Um, Do you feel like it's easier to be a woman sort of in the Orthodox community than to be a man? A gay woman as opposed to a gay man? Yes. So I think... Like, the psychic burden that men carry from that one pasuk in Vayikra is, it seems to be enormous. I mean, every conversation that I have with a rabbi about LGBT identity is always seen through the lens of that one pasuk. And I never understand it. It's like... Why don't you... Why don't you yeah, just elaborate. Vet zachar lo tishkav Right? With a man... A man should not sleep with another man as he would sleep with a woman. Right. So mishkav zachar is considered... Uh, it's basically anal sex is what right. the rabbis have decided it means. So it's an abomination. It's a big deal. I like to not talk about vayikra, actually, because I feel like it narrows the conversation. Like, it's a dead end. Like, where do we go from there? It's, a, it's an abomination. Okay, it's, it's over. But to me, like, what we know now about being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, you know, gender neutral... Like, this is the way people are, right? This is just like, this is life. The psychiatric community knows that this is life. And the rabbis will eventually get it, and they'll stop focusing on that pasuk, I believe. So, so but from a pra- I guess I'm asking from a practical perspective. Do you feel like life as a lesbian in the Orthodox or the committed religious community is harder than... I, I would think it would be easier than life as a, as a gay man. Yeah, if I could sort of add to the question, you know, my wife actually made this point to me, and she said, so women in the Orthodox community start by being invisible, and then gay women are, like, doubly invisible because nobody, like, acknowledges them. And so on the one hand, they don't have that weight of that halachic prohibition, and that's what I've been talking about, about therefore they get, like, under the radar, but is that better or worse because that means that they're just that much more invisible? You know, it depends on who you ask, and it depends on who you are. Some people are more comfortable being completely under the radar, doubly under the radar. I think the problem emerges is what's happening now is that people are coupling, some people are coupling, and they are having children. And once you introduce children into the picture, you can't really ignore that, you know, Chava has two mommies, right? So it sort of brings up a lot more, a lot more questions of, like, how should this family be treated 
in communal life. So now we're not talking about sex anymore, we're talking about communal life. With, with men, the problem stops much sooner. We have this um, project where we're interviewing rabbis about whether their shuls are welcoming, and we're having sort of like these open-ended conversations to see how far each rabbi will go. So for some rabbis, it's, you know, uh, no, a, a gay couple can't join as a, as a family. Like, that's just not what we do here. You know, and some rabbis will say, well, of course they can join as a family, but um, we're not going to acknowledge their union, like, with a kiddish or with a mazel tov, or we want to acknowledge the birth of their children. And then some rabbis will stop and say, well... Sure, a gay man can have an aliyah, but if he's in an active relationship with another man, that's when he cannot have an aliyah. So, like, it stops a lot sooner, I think, with men. Their involvement in communal life, and it's more, it's more visible, I guess, to people if they're going to be out. If we could shift gears for a minute about talk about Eshel. So could you tell us a little bit about, like, what Eshel does and uh, sort of, you know, how it assesses the most pressing issues in the community that it's out to address? Sure. So Eshel began about five years ago, and we started as a, uh, we had like a two-pronged approach. One was to create community for LGBT Orthodox Jews so that they could find each other, get to know each other, and celebrate their lives together and, and, and just like have a network. And this network has grown tremendously, and it's just become like a safety, a safety net for people when they travel to other cities. They know, like, you know, where they can go and who they can talk to if they're um, in the closet. And it's become like a real family. So that's part of what we do. But then we realized over time, after being approached by some parents, that it was really the parents that needed a lot of support, almost as much support as the kids. Because when they say with Orthodox children, when the kid comes out, the parent goes into the closet. So we, start by having, we started by having a parent retreat. And for a lot of the parents, it was extremely profound. It was on Shabbos. We wanted the Shabbat experience together. So we're davening together. And one of the women said, this is the first time I've sat in shul since my son came out to me a year ago without the fear of somebody asking me, how's David? Is he dating anybody? And this to her was like tremendous. So the parents actually need a lot of support because they have to now decide whether they're going to come out to their rabbi and their community. And parents of teens, parents of LGBT teens, are like totally on the front lines because often the teen will want to come out because people are coming out younger and younger. There's like a Pew study about this, and it's happening more and more in the Orthodox community. So the parent now has a whole set of systems to deal with. They have to deal with the teacher. They have to deal with the school psychologist, they have to deal with the principal, they have to deal with the shul rabbi, and it goes on and on and on. So they really need a lot of support. They need to understand how to navigate the systems. Nobody is helping them except each other, because a lot of them have success stories and they share with each other. So it's like this wonderful peer support. So that's a lot of what we do. We also have started to work with a cadre of rabbis who are sort of creating a think tank with each other. There's about 25 of them from all different ranges of, of rabbinic background. And they, they actually help each other think through the really difficult topics, mostly from a sociological perspective, but also from a halachic perspective. We actually keep these rabbis' names off a list because some of them are not out about their connection with us, and we respect that and honor it, and they can't do this work unless they're closeted, and we, we get that. And we're trying to sort of move towards making the rabbis that we work with more accessible to LGBT people because what happens is when you grow up Orthodox, you know, from the time that you can understand anything, you're given a way to do everything that you're supposed to do, right? How do you tie your shoe? How do you, how do you eat? How do you do this? How do you go to sleep? 
and on and on until, you know, the end of your life. So when you're an LGBT person in orthodoxy and you start discovering that you actually are developing same-sex attraction, then all of a sudden you realize that there are no halachot to guide you whatsoever. This can be liberating and this can also be terribly frightening because basically the umbilical cord of the halakha and the thing that has given you joy and, and meaning in your life is gone. So you actually have no way to really understand what am I supposed to do now. And we can't go to Orthodox rabbis and say, am I supposed to observe yichud when I go out on a date? Like, am I, not, am I supposed to be shomer negia when I go out on a date? Like, you know, the rabbi, like, you're, like, you're out of your mind. Right. Can I ask you, so our time is coming to a close, so I want to just make sure... Um, we address also not just gay and lesbian, but also transgender and transsexual, because I think that those are um, still pretty invisible within the community, much more so than gay and lesbian. And uh, I certainly I'll say that as a rabbi in the last five years, I have gotten so many shilas relating to, um, to transgender people. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the community and, um, and people grappling with that within the Orthodox community. Yeah, I, yes, absolutely. I feel like we have two minutes left. I don't even want to start talking about this, because this this is a this is shown to itself, honestly, it's, and it's really important. Um, so I think a lot of transgender people have a problem with being lumped together with the LG and the B, and totally rightfully so. It's not exact, it's not the same. But you know, until we get strong enough, I, I feel like we're all in this together. So we have put ourselves in the same room together to um, help each other fight the fight. So just as sexuality is very fluid, so is gender. When somebody is gender queer in that they don't identify with any gender, that's when the halakha has no idea what to do with that person because we live in a binary system in the halakha, right? You're either male or you're female. Sometimes what happens is when a person discovers that they're transgender and then they tell their parents, sometimes now it's happening more around bar and bat mitzvah age. We're noticing that, you know, when it's time for the bar mitzvah, the boy will go to his parents and say, you know, I, I actually... I'm not sure I want to have a bar mitzvah, and maybe I want to have a bat mitzvah, or maybe I want to have a mitzvah ceremony, and I'm not quite sure what that is. So that's when, you know, the thing starts to, the dialogue starts to happen about where is this child going to be? Where is this child going to sit? What side of the mechitzah are they going to sit on? So it's so very complicated, and we've had rabbis who have been, like, way more understanding, and then the child will, you know, maybe take a break from the community and come back, and then the rabbi will let them sit on the side that they're comfortable on. But more often than not, that's not been the case. And I think the rabbinic community really needs a lot of help with understanding transgender people. Yeah, I think um, what you're pointing out is how far we have to go in terms of conversations about this. I mean, I feel like we're just starting to have conversations about what, what are all the implications for the community. And I think it's such an amazing thing that you guys are pushing for at least to have the conversations. So thank you. At Mays Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Mays is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mayshealth.com. All right, now we're going to go to the third part of our podcast, and that is questions. So we're going to deal first with a question that came in prior to this evening, mm. and that is about talking 
I'll use the word term dirty, although I'm going to challenge that. People asked, how about use, you know, talking in a way that we would think was not appropriate when you're in bed having sex with your partner. And so do you want to start with that? Sure, I'll start. You know, from a young age, we're taught, uh, regardless of halacha, that, you know, you, there are certain words you're not supposed to say. And um, this gets... Um, associated with an idea called nivel peh, which is like uh, profaning the mouth. It's actually quite interesting, you know, when uh, I, 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 my students tell me this, and I find this very frequently, that as soon as somebody knows you're a rabbi or even a rabbinical student, and then they uh, curse in your presence, they say, oh, I'm so sorry, rabbi. Um, <laughs> Not me. Um, they don't Not say me. that to you. No. Okay, you don't, you don't, don't apologize. Say, I don't yeah, apologize. <laughs> Oh, anyway, um, so there is this uh, there is this taboo associated with these dirty words, um, particularly in a sense that they're like religiously wrong. Um, what's really interesting is the Talmud says very little about Nivopet, and it's really fascinating to contrast two passages in the Talmud. The one passage in the Talmud that talks about Nivopet, profaning or, you know, the mouth, uh, speaking unseem- in an unseemly way, speaks not about the words one says, but about actually a prurient interest in somebody else's sex life. The Talmud actually says that everybody knows, again, this is the man's perspective, so talking to everybody, all the men, everybody knows why the bride is standing under the chuppah, meaning so here the bride is under the chuppah and the men are probably thinking about the fact that she's going to be having sex, you know, and thinking, oh, that's why she's getting married. So it's interesting, like projecting sexual, there's whatever sexual thoughts on her. It says, but the one who actually says something, this, you know, this is nivel path. He, you know, he's, he's uh, profaned his mouth and he's going to suffer like tremendous uh, punishment in heaven for this. So actually it's not about a, a curse word. It's actually about, like, inappropriate, prurient interest in somebody else's sex life. On the other hand, when the Talmud, with the rabbi hiding under the other rabbi's bed when he's having sex with his wife, right, Rav Kahana hiding under Rav's bed, so uh, often what's forgotten is actually what the Talmud says happened. And the Talmud says that Rav, it says, was he's talked, and then he fooled around, and then he had sex. So talked about some type of verbal and, and, uh, and, and other types of foreplay, and then had sex. And then Rav Kahana, who's hiding under the bed, says, it seems like, um, you know, but by what he's saying, the the way he's talking, it seems like he's never, literally it says, it seems like he's never had food before, which basically means it seems like he's never had sex before, like he's just talking in such a, you know, profane way. Um, And, uh, of course, then, you know, Rob says, no, you know, like, you know, first of all, he says, what are you doing under the bed? So (laughs) get out of here. Anyway, so he says, no, I have to learn. This is Torah, too. So the Torah is, is that that type of talk is actually quite appropriate in the bedroom as a way of creating, you know, um, arousal and getting uh, getting a husband and wife excited. So it's actually quite fascinating, you know, that contrast between what the Gemara labels as nivel peh and the Gemara has absolutely no problem in terms of this type of talk within the bedroom. It doesn't say used a curse word, but I don't know if that was on their radar screen, but anyway. Right. I mean, I think the question becomes, like, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate? And what's appropriate, in my mind, is what a couple feels is appropriate. So, you know, that goes to the question of, you know, do you use language that makes your partner uncomfortable? Um, and I feel like that's a conversation that needs to be had, although I'm going to give a little a little thing on discomfort in a second. Um, but I, I, you know, somebody says, you know, is it okay to talk dirty? I'm like, I don't even know what talking dirty means, right? Does that mean you're talking about, you're using street language that you wouldn't normally use every day? Well, I speak very differently in different situations, right? I, when I'm speaking publicly, 
I don't talk the same way as I talk to my children. Um, we all have different ways that we communicate. And when a person is in bed, um, or when they're ha- or not necessarily in bed, but when they're having sexual activities with other people, um, with other, another person, then what is appropriate is the conversation that turns them on, turns their spouse on, um, and allows them to have a great sex life. Now, let's go back to if the partner is not comfortable. If something you're saying is making your partner uncomfortable, then I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. I don't know how many of you, you know, Sex in the City, there was an episode where, I don't know, some, I don't know the red-haired, but Miranda, um, so she was having sex with somebody and he, he wanted her to talk and she couldn't talk because she wasn't used to talking when they were having sex. And, and anybody see this episode? And then she gets started and then she won't shut up. <laughs> So, so, you know, it is a matter of sort of finding, kind of finding the balance. But I, I, now I'm going to say something which is a tight, tad off topic, but I think is really important. And it maybe goes back to that uh, masturbation issue we're talking about as well. Um, sometimes somebody says to me, well, something makes me uncomfortable. And, you know, we, we, my partner wants to try something, but it makes me uncomfortable. Um, or I think about trying this, but it makes me nervous. Now, I think, you know, being comfortable and um, sure-footed on everything is a little overrated. Mona Fishbane, who is a therapist in Chicago, and I were having this conversation a little earlier about how that which is total you know, total closeness and knowing somebody and being completely comfortable with them is often the opposite of erotic, right? If you think about relationships, often they start out much more erotic because you're a little bit nervous, you're a little uncomfortable, you kind of, you don't know where you're going, and that eroticism and... um, and intimacy sometimes don't always work exactly. They don't work in tandem. And we think as a society, we're so like, you know, so convinced that the more comfortable you are with somebody, um, and the more sort of intense your relationship is in terms of being, you know, again, a comfort level with that person and intimate with that person, then your sex life will be better. But that doesn't really seem to bear out. It seems that there's some kind of like, you know, converse uh, uh, relationship. And so I'm going to say that I think that sometimes a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, a little edgy, like that's actually a good thing in a sex life. And we need to be able to acknowledge that. Now, you have to balance that with, you know, if your partner says to you, look, I really hate it when you say this when we're having sex, so please stop it, um, then that's a different issue, and that's one that has to be addressed. But given that it's within a respectful, consensual relation, and again, respectful, respectful meaning respecting what the other person wants, not that everything I say, you know, has a please and a thank you before it, um, then I think that that is a pretty easy way to make your sex life a little spicier without having halakhic problems. Right. So, so... So two thoughts. First, um, I want to share something in terms of when we're, ta- if we're talking about sort of dirty words that made a profound impact on me, which is uh, a rabbinic listserv that I'm part of. The topic came up about this. How do you deal when people say dirty words, you know, cuss, curse words in front of you as a rabbi? Do you respond? Do you not respond? Can you ever use those types of words? And actually, I was very moved because Rabbi Ari Hart from uh, Chovei, um, he actually, his contribution to that conversation was he said, you know, actually, I think that there are a lot worse words than the F word or, or the, you know, SH word, words like you know, stupid, fat, ugly. He says those are the words we should really never say. And I just thought that that's, uh, I think, a really important point that we should be taking to heart in general in terms of the types of words that can profane and hurt and injure. Um, so that's, you know, thinking about what 
dirty and off-limit words are. In terms of this issue, I wanted to ask, you know, I guess, I guess, look, you know, I probably have internalized these taboos about these words, so maybe I'm still feeling a little conflicted, even with, you know, sort of the passage in the Talmud that I shared. But I, I am wondering, like, you know, we see on TV and in books and in movies, you know, where these types of words are used very profusely. And that normally comes from a culture that I would say does not share the same type of values as ours. Um, so I, I guess my question to you, Bachev, is how, because I feel conflicted about this, how do you feel that, okay, it might turn the couple on, but does too much use of a certain type of a street language, you know, is that like, is that, you know, pulling them down, you know, in terms of the types of, uh, you know, values that they, uh, you know, their own sort of sense of, of themselves and, and their values? I mean, I think that our concern about using some of that language in day-to-day conversation when they're on the street mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, it, be, it, it is because kind of you don't know where you are. Like, in other words, you're not choosing the language based on the environment, right? Mm-hmm. That, I feel like, is important. However, when you're talking about couples using language in the bedroom because that turns them on, to me that feels like the perfect use of that language. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I, it feels like it's a lot more appropriate in that setting than it is when you're standing at the bus stop and you're angry because the bus didn't come. Right. Right? So I don't see it that way. I mean, I think that we behave, you know, in an ideal world, we behave differently when we're having sex with our partner than we do in the, you know, the outside world. And I think those lines seem very obvious to me and not not lines that would get necessarily blurred. We're going to move on to another question that came in. Um, So these questions are, they're great questions and if we don't hit your question, somebody asked a question here, by the way, about um, should female masturbation be discussed at home and should schools discuss it and I I hope we'll have a a segment um, in the future all about talking to your kids about sex. Um, It's something I feel really strongly about, how people raise their children and how they they present sex. In the last podcast, we talked about um, mikvah, discussing going to the mikvah with your um, children. So um, I really feel strongly about but it's a huge topic. I think it's a whole topic so I don't think we're going to address that. I think we're going to look at this question. So the question is, what about mutual masturbation during Nida time, when a woman is during her, you know, she, had her, she has her menstrual period and she can't, and they're not having sexual relationships with each other. So I, I want to back up and just make some definitions. I'm not sure I'm going to be answering this person's particular question, but first let's talk about mutual masturbation in general, that idea that there's a couple, they're having sex. I consider that sex. They're using their hands on each other or they're, hand, they're using their hands on themselves and they're doing it at the same time in order to give sexual gratification to each other. That's what mutual masturbation is. I guess I wouldn't see it as any different than any other kind of sex during Nida. Like, in other right. words, if you can't have intercourse, vaginal intercourse and you can't have anal intercourse, I don't know why you would be able to have mutual masturbation. Right. No, during Nida, it would clearly be prohibited. You know, there's some debate of the various things in addition to intercourse that are also prohibited, you know, in terms of what are called harchakot, various distancing, so it doesn't lead to sex. Then there's no question that this is, you know, probably even biblically prohibited. So in terms of the Nida, that's really not uh, not a question. Um, it's I not do, a question because it's, it's not no. a question because it's obviously <laughs> okay. no, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, thank you for Just, clarifying. You, All right. Safe, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. No, it's clearly, it's, it would be clearly prohibited. But I do want to say something about mutual masturbation. And again, we talked before about, you know, the fact that the uh, Talmud really says that all sexual activity between husband and wife is permissible, not during the Nida period. And there are some that limit that to circumstances and when the man does not ejaculate outside of the woman. But that is not the position that, for example, the Ramah takes, um, which is uh, the primary decisor for at least Ashkenazi Jews. Um, And um, certainly I would say not the simple sense of the Talmud. And therefore, it's important to know that in terms of not 
not the need to period. Mutual masturbation, even if it leads to the man ejaculating, is really not a problem. And maybe it's a good opportunity to address a question that somebody wrote in, which is certainly a, circumst- uh, a situation that I've had um, in, you know, in my rabbinate and somebody's people have asked me about. Sometimes you find that the couple has, uh, the, the husband and wife have different sexual dr- sex drives. And the, one of them, one of the partners is much, wants to have sex much more frequently than the other and how to sort of deal with that. So if we realize that there are different forms of that sex can take, it really get, opens up a lot of opportunities. So uh, it really is important to, to, to understand that there's a wide range of uh, sexual activity, you know, that the couple can engage in and uh, including mutual masturbation. Um, we got a follow-up question, to okay. our, which I think is really interesting. The question is, what about talk, dirty talk or, and or sexting outside of the marriage? Is it better halakhically for a non-married couple to sex instead of having a sex life, like oral sex or making out? So that's a lot of questions in there. So let me let, – I want to address the, 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 the talking sexy or sexting outside of marriage because I feel like at this point there's been nothing that I've said I don't think is appropriate. <laughs> but I think that that's problematic. I think that um, if a couple, you know, came, came to talk to me and said, you know, the, the wife said, look, my husband's carrying on the sexual relationship um, by phone, you know, or – by internet um, with somebody outside, is that okay? I'd say I think those are issues you need to really like talk about because the idea really is to keep the sexual relationship within the context of that relationship. And um, even if you're not actually putting A in slot B, um, if outside the relationship, talking about you know putting part A in slot B outside <laughs> the relationship is really not appropriate, I think, or helpful to a relationship either. So mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming Halacha will talk about that, but I... Right. You know. I don't know if this question intended that that, the, that somebody is married and having and sexting with somebody else yes. or it meant two single well, people outside sexting. Of, oh, 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 outside of marriage, <laughs> two single people sexting. So is it better to be carrying on a sexual relationship by um, texting rather than actually... In person. In person. <laughs> well, I, I, okay. You know, I, I always feel like we have to table this one but I because we have to but I will say that I think that one of the things that having a relationship outside you know before marriage having a relationship um you know any kind of physical relationship it sort of gives you a sense of what's what's to come like it lets you know what like what this relationship hopefully will be like once you do get married where I don't really think sexting is very useful I mean, it might be a little bit. I have to think about it. <laughs> well, I'll just say that halachically, if uh, in situations where sex is forbidden, so, you know, sexting would be better than sex. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, maybe I'll just use it as an opportunity to also say that um, I think it's important that something that uh, I don't think uh, – Orthodox men and women learn well enough because uh, tends to be that you go from sort of abstinence to a full sexual life is sort of uh, gradations in between and uh, foreplay and building up a sense of anticipation and uh, and you know all the various types of things that happen even before you get to the bedroom. So thinking about sexting one spouse um, and um, you know could actually be something that I think uh, we probably have to do a good job in terms of that or other ways of building up some sense of anticipation and excitement even before the couple moves to the bedroom. Um, I think we have a few more minutes. But somebody did ask about um, 
mixed swimming. That's <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't know. That seems like a completely different category than so, the Well, no, because it falls into the kind of category. Well, you know, you know the, sexting is forbidden because it'll lead to mixed swimming. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I, I, I have to just tell you, like, I think the question about mixed swimming. I. I I think the question about McSwimming is probably more of a question of, like, are people going to get turned on and then spill seed? Like, that's the, the parallel. <laughs> not so much... Um, I mean, swimming, McSwimming is not sex. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean... <laughs> All right, so I have to tell the story about this. <laughs> Which is, you know, so there is, uh, there's nowhere in the Talmud where it says you can't go mixed swimming. Um, but the Talmud does speak a great deal, as we mentioned earlier, about um, its concern about a man having sexual thoughts and that that leads then to, you know, uh, masturbation or otherwise intentional, unintentional sort of ejaculation and so on. So the Talmud definitely speaks about a man not looking at things, whether it's women or whatever it might be, that will be sexually arousing. So, you know, from there, obviously, develop the sort of uh, strong uh, social norm in many Orthodox communities that um, at least men don't go mixed swimming or in general don't go mixed swimming because it tends to be, you know, uh, can be very arousing um, depending on who else is at the the pool at the same time with you or the beach. There's a story, though, which is that the students of Ravar and Soloveitchik once went and asked him and they said, Rebbe, are we allowed to go mixed swimming? So he said, yes. So they said, yes. They said, but what about Hurim? What about sexual thoughts? So he said, oh, if you have sexual thoughts, it's forbidden. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think what's important about that is some of this has to do, and I think on this note we'll probably end, is that some of this has to do with cultural norms, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do people dress and how do people act and what are people used to? And so if going to the beach is something that you do normally and is not particularly sexually arousing, um, then that sort of, to my mind, that loses the question a little bit. you know, it has the same. It has goes back to the whole issue of you know girls covering up in day schools as well. You know, one of my one of my my older son went to public high school and the girls dressed totally however they wanted. And I remember having a conversation with him. I said, like, do you do you feel like the girls are dressed really sexy? He said, well, there's always a couple of girls who are clearly dressing in order to be enticing, but most of the girls are wearing you know shorts or t-shirts or you know even sleeveless shirts, and it's so. It's so everywhere around us. It's just not. It's not an issue, and I, I feel like that's what's happening with the swimming issue as well. I feel like if you're just somebody who grows up and goes to mixed beaches, you know, there's people on the beach, and um, it's not really, it's not really a sexually enticing thing. If it is, you guys should do it right before, you know, after you get married, when it's, you're on time, go to the beach together. <laughs> we thank you. Um, it's thank really you been all. a lot of fun, yeah, and we'll talk to you soon. This episode of The Joy of Text was originally recorded at Libmood, New York in 2016 and is a re-release that's produced by Max Hollander. If you have any other favorite episodes you would like to hear again, please let us know at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show us some love by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 